Over the last few weeks, Michael's been addressing great themes in the Gospels regarding the teaching of Jesus, um, and I appreciate those lessons. Uh, I've been going through lessons on simply the future and the reality of death, the, the reality of the return of Christ, uh, the reality of the resurrection. Uh, in the weeks to come, we will talk about heaven and uh, looking forward to speaking on that grand subject. Uh, as Michael pointed out in his words before the Lord's Supper, um, the Lord is seeking to take us someplace, and he's seeking to take us to be with himself one day, and that's why he's sending his son back. But we have to talk about the alternative. Because the reality of choosing against God in this life or rejecting Him could not have more dire consequences. This life is not like playing in a raffle where if your number just doesn't get chosen, you're just kind of out and you just you go back to the way things are. Uh, two polar opposites real, uh, realities await us. Either the reality of heaven or the reality of hell or eternal punishment, it's called in Scripture. And we simply have to come to terms with that to the degree that Scripture does. Not to sensationalize it, not to spend more time with it than Scripture does, not to minimize it, nor to exaggerate what is there in Scripture, but simply come to terms with it because God put it there for a reason. But it's still difficult to talk about. There's other things we'd rather talk about. Uh, this last week, uh, you probably heard the story about uh, the small airplane that was on its way back, taking um, at least one, maybe two people away from a diving expedition. Well, as they were flying on the trip from where they were, uh, the pilot apparently became incoherent, the passenger said. And the passenger was able to get onto the radio and tell the control tower that the pilot was now incoherent and he didn't know what to do. But yet through that passenger's calmness, his choices to listen to what the controller would tell him to do, he was able to successfully land that plane. In fact, online you can see the video. He didn't do a bad job at all by listening to the one he needed to listen to to get himself down safely. He didn't do it of his own accord. He didn't know what to do. And it's great to talk about that story, but the reality is what would have happened if he had rejected what the controller told him to do or if he would frozen up in panic? What would have happened? He would have crashed and died. Sometimes the reality of what happens if we don't make the right choice is, is there, but we still don't want to talk about it. But that's what would have happened to him. And, and today as we talk about the reality of hell in the second part of the lesson, we simply have to talk about these things. So this morning the title is simply The Reality of Hell, Avoiding the Unthinkable. Because unthinkable is just about the best way to describe this reality of hell. It boggles the mind to think that this would be the alternative. I don't have to agree with it or not. In fact, I don't think of too many people that I think I would allow to go there. But our God sees things completely differently. In fact, he says in Romans chapter 1, there are people who are simply without excuse, who have rejected him despite his power 
and his existence being clearly evident by the things that are made. There are those who simply rejected that, and hell is simply the reality of that. We kind of talk about hell more than we think we do. Whenever we invoke the word saved, are you saved, or when you sing songs that are being saved, we have to realize, saved from what? Not just kind of dropping out of existence, or not winning the raffle or something like that. We are saved from hell. And the consequences of our rebellious choices against God. That is the greatest deliverance. The deliverance that we're going to see through Jesus Christ. And the ultimate blessing of that decision. Going to be with God forever in heaven. Philip Bliss in his great hymn, I will sing of my Redeemer. And one of the verses simply says, I will praise my Redeemer. Of his triumphal power I'll tell. Or the victory he giveth over death, sin, and hell. He understood that we have a victory over hell. We are saved from hell. But we have to see who will not experience salvation. Who will not be with the Heavenly Father. And I want to spend time this morning looking at two areas, looking at two areas regarding hell. First of all, who will be there to make sure we're not part of that group? The scripture is pretty clear. And then we'll look at the reverse that simply underlines the first point, hell and who will not be there. So first hell and who will be there, and then hell and who will not be there. First of all, hell and who will be there. Without a doubt, scripture says the devil and his angels will be there. Matthew chapter 25, uh, verse 41 in this uh, Reality text, if you will call it there, regarding what will happen on the judgment day with those on his right and on his left. And as Jesus gives a glimpse into part of the criteria of who will go into everlasting punishment or everlasting reward. To those who have rejected God and rejected what he's told them to do. Verse 41 says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. First of all, in verse 41, Jesus says these words, depart from me. One of the continual themes about hell in Scripture is that hell fundamentally involves the absence of God. In other places, as hell is described, it talks about people going there away from the presence of the Lord. We live in a world where God's presence is here. Uh, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, as Jesus taught. Unbelievers, atheists, those who reject God, those who curse His name, still enjoy this beautiful earth, enjoy laws that are blessed in many ways simply by being here in a place where God blesses. But hell is the opposite. And those who will be there, first of all, are simply the devil and his angels. The devil is a real being, and we'll probably cover that in lessons to come. He has his own angelic force, even though this is difficult to comprehend. He lives in what is called the spiritual world of darkness, as Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 6. Revelation highlights the theme that he will be cast into hell upon the judgment day. 
He's exerting his power now to tempt us and to draw us away from what is right and good. But one day he will find his ultimate punishment. And he is at the top of the list, if you will, of who will be there. Scripture does not entertain the idea that uh, Satan is now reigning in hell or, or that he will reign in hell uh, even after the judgment. He is simply first in line of who will go there and his demonic forces that are empowered that we don't fully understand, they will be right there with him. In fact, Jesus underlines the fact that that's what hell was prepared for. This is who, I'm sorry, this is who hell is prepared for. The devil and his angels. Hell was never brought into existence for people. But people who follow in the same path as the devil and his angels, that is rebelling against God rather than following him, will find the same judgment. But hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. The second group who will be there are simply those who reject God. Look at 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. There are many places we could go to. Uh, Romans chapter 1 is a very thorough place. We read that text last week. I want to see how... Paul, in the second letter to the Thessalonians, addresses this same thought about who will be there. The context is that Christians are being persecuted for their faith. And in this first chapter, the Apostle Paul is talking about eventually those who are persecuting Christians will be punished. And we'll start with verse 5, and then we'll go through verse 10 and talk about what it means to reject God. Verse 5, 2 Thessalonians 1 all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. Verse 6, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day that he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you have believed our testimony. Here's those who will be punished, verse 8. Paul says, he will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are two groups being addressed here who are going to experience everlasting punishment. First of all, those who do not know God. He doesn't say those who do not know about God or those who missed a lesson that they tried to learn about God in or those who are trying to come to God. Those in Scripture who do not know God are simply of those who have stayed outside of any kind of relationship or connection with Him where they wanted to bring themselves under His authority. In other places, especially in Romans chapter 1, it's simply those who have rejected him that he describes as being without excuse. They've chosen a path of evil. 
In other places, Scripture says they're self-seeking. They've simply done what they've wanted to do apart from God. They're simply people that don't like being told what to do and especially do not want to be told what to do by God. Uh, they reject the idea of accountability towards God. They reject the idea that they've been created to worship and serve God. They reject the idea that this book tells them anything about the direction of their life that they ought to go. Or they simply say, I don't care, I'm not going to do that. Those who do not know God in Scripture are a group that have chosen to reject any kind of meaningful connection to God where they're responsible to Him. Again, it's not those who just don't know about Him that would have accepted Him if someone had just told them. We'll follow up on that thought in just a minute. It's those who have rejected God and anything to do with Him. Look at Romans chapter 2 now. I'll just look at this text really quick just to underline the text in 2 Thessalonians. Romans chapter 2, verse 8, starting in verse 6. Actually, we'll start with verse 5. Romans 2, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay everyone according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking, and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. So those who do not know God in 2 Thessalonians are the same group who simply reject God. They simply do not want Him controlling their life. They may know about Him, they may have heard about Him, but they simply reject Him. They don't want that kind of knowledge in their life. Here it simply says that everlasting punishment or God's wrath and anger will be upon them on the judgment day. They made the choice to reject God. Now the consequences of that choice will be upon them, whether they agree with the consequences or not. The third group that will be there are those that reject the gospel. This is almost a refinement of this uh, first group of those who reject God. Again, in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, it says he will punish those who do not know God, verse 8, and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who do not obey are simply those who have heard that Jesus is the answer. And they heard that they have a way to be made free of their sin, but they simply said, I don't want it. I'm not interested in it. I don't think I need it. But they did hear about it. They simply do not obey it. The idea of repenting from their sin or changing their life is simply something they don't want to do because they're living the way they want to live. So they will not repent. Uh, they will not believe that Jesus is the Son of God in the, to the extent that He now has authority over their life. They will not be baptized to be washed away from their sin and submit to that because they don't think their sin is that bad. Because that's a very humbling act. They, their pride and their idea, I just don't want that or need that. I'm a good enough person. In that sense, they've rejected the gospel. 
It's like someone who fell overboard from a ship. They're there treading water, and the Coast Guard comes along and tosses out the orange buoy, and it comes right at them. It floats right at them. I don't, I don't want it. I will swim to shore on my own. Or I'll try to get back my own way. Or I just don't want to receive any help. Or I don't want to admit that I'm going to drown. It's that same equivalent. They've rejected the only way they can be saved. And Scripture is quite clear about this. Those that simply reject it, even though it's been explained to them, it's been shown to them, it's been demonstrated by the life of others, if they reject the very thing that God has sent to save them, the only alternative will be an everlasting punishment. Again, they made a choice. And the reality of that choice is simply away from the presence of God and an eternal punishment. The fourth group are those who abandon their faith. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. If someone obeys the gospel, they become a Christian, they recognize their need of salvation, they submit to the Lord in baptism, they repent of their sins, they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, they confess Him as Lord, but at some time later in their life they said, I'm tired of this. Or I want to go back to the old way I used to live. I enjoyed that. Here's what God says about that decision. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Verse 28, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think those deserve to be punished who have trampled the Son of God underfoot, who have treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who have insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know Him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge His people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In this specific text, the writer of the book of Hebrews is talking about those, those who once were in a relationship that could be called saved and is described as being saved in Scripture, but yet they chose to reject that. And he talked about the punishment of someone who rejected Moses' law under the first covenant. He basically says, how much more worse is it someone who's rejected the Son of God? All of history points towards the Son of God and God's plan to save people. But if someone comes into that relationship of being saved, but then they reject it at some point saying, I don't want it anymore, I'm not interested, and they walk away from it. It is a choice that they make. They are rejecting the very God that saved them. It's kind of like being pulled in from the ship and you're on the Coast Guard vessel heading, heading back to shore. But then you jump right back in the water. <laughs> that you'd rather be there. That's how God sees that choice. These are the four groups that Scripture points to that have made a choice of where they will be in eternity. Here are some applications regarding these four thoughts I think we need to come to terms with. First of all, it's this. This is loud and clear in Scripture. No one will be in hell by accident. 
There's not one scripture that entertains the idea that someone will be there. Oh, I just I didn't know. I didn't know God. I didn't know about God. I, I didn't know. In every text that describes someone being in hell, it's always a result of their rejection of God in this life. No one will be in hell by accident or apart from their choice to reject God in this life. No one would be in hell without having rejected God in this life and His reaching out to them to save them. And Romans chapter 1 goes through the criteria how God evaluates people interacting with Him or engaging Him or accepting His presence. And in each place, it's always rejection. Even if someone who in the most remote part of the world just knew a little bit, if they reject that, Paul says they are simply without excuse. Choices have consequences, and we must choose well. In the high school where I teach, um, they have what used to be called detention, where students who have accumulated enough tardies or cuts, uh, they will trigger the old word detention, where they, had to stay, they have to stay in the cafeteria after school. If they cut a certain number of days, uh, they have to go to what's called Saturday school and spend a few hours there with the dean. But they changed the name recently to simply Choices. I think they try to take away the negativity of it by not calling it detention or, or things like that. But they called it choices, which, as I thought about later, it, yeah, it takes away the idea that the school is doing something to you and switches it to, you made this choice, and this is the reality of your choice. And they will send the slips out to the classes. Here's the students that have to go to choices this afternoon. And there's not a whole lot of argument when the students get them. There's a lot of disappointment. Ah, it's kind of like the other students know exactly who's going to get them because they know who's cutting. They know who's tardy all the time. But they call it choices because that student made a choice not to come to class. The parent never cleared it as illness. Three days later, it becomes a truancy. There was ample time to respond to correct it if there was a mistake by the attendance taker and for the parent to call in. But if nothing's been done and it's clearly a cut. It is a choice they made. And they experience the consequences of that choice. But our culture has a very difficult time with people accepting the consequences of their choice. We want to explain, excuse. That's why it's, there's such a difficult time with Scripture's presentation of this concept of eternal punishment. We simply have a hard time taking responsibility. But hell is presented as a place where someone has chosen this life to reject God. And hell is a full manifestation of what rejecting God really looks like. It's more awful than we can imagine. Let's shift the lens, if we will, now in the latter part of the lesson to address some questions concerning who will be there and who will not be there. I want to look now at hell and who will not be there. Because sometimes in our thoughts about choices and who's able to make a choice, who cannot make a choice, we wonder, well, what about this group? Or what about this person? And where would they fall, if you will? For those who will not be there, 
I think the first group that Scripture paints a picture as not being there are those that could simply be called unaccountable. Scripture, as it talks about eternal life or eternal destruction, punishment, always presents it, as we just talked about, in the matter of choices. Someone making a conscious decision to reject God in their life. And it can be accurately inferred, though, that if someone was never able even to make that choice based on their age or their lack of ability mentally to make a choice either to accept God or reject Him, they would not be someone that would be in hell because they simply did not reject God. First question comes up with, what about young children that die? Infants. There's some religions that teach they are born in sin. Scripture does not teach that. Accountability comes with age and the ability to discern good and bad or good and evil and then choose against good. But those who are unaccountable are those who simply were not ever able to make that choice. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, David is weighing the reality of his rebelling against God and how that his infant child died as a punishment. And Acts chapter 2 refers to David as a prophet. He knew the things of God, even though at times he made choices against God's rule in his life. But he had an understanding about that child. He said, that child will not come back to me, but I will go to him. And it's commonly understood that his understanding is that that child is with the Lord or with the God in heaven. And Scripture paints a picture of the innocence of children. Not innocence forever, but innocence in these early years where there's simply not a concept developed yet of fully understanding right and wrong. My understanding is if they die at a young age, they are simply unaccountable. They did not have the ability to believe the gospel, to obey it, to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. And they therefore are unaccountable. Those who are mentally, mentally incapacitated and simply cannot choose, I would believe would be unaccountable. The scripture continually points to the ability to choose God, but not choosing. So that would be a group I've considered unaccountable. The unborn you continue with a list of those who simply did not fall into this category of having committed sin, nor have the ability to choose a Savior and to be obedient to Him. Romans 2, again, verse 5 through 8, talks about those who are rescued or those who believe, who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That takes a mental ability to make that decision. And if you can't make it, our just God will not hold someone accountable for that. Scripture presents that thought. Secondly, those who will not be there are those who have trusted and obeyed Jesus. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. This is representative of all the texts that speak to salvation and the power of it through Jesus Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. Paul says, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, 
and on which you have taken your stand. Verse 2, by this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. This text speaks about those who have reached out and grabbed the life buoy. <laughs> Jesus came to rescue them and they've accepted the rescue. Not everyone accepts being rescued. Those are the ones who have rejected the gospel. They don't want to be rescued. But those who do want to be rescued, because they realize that drowning is the only alternative, are those who are going to be saved. And that is completely consistent throughout Scripture. But notice the responsibility of the choice of that. Look back at the beginning of the verse, uh, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. That's a message of salvation. I preached to you which you have received. That is, you heard it, you accepted it, and on which you have taken your stand. It's not that they've earned anything or deserved anything. They've just grabbed onto the life buoy. They've decided to be in the place of salvation. They've taken their stand. He says, by this gospel you are saved. The gospel is Jesus Christ, not us. So when a person accepts the salvation from Jesus, they simply put themselves in the right place. They've taken a responsibility for their choices and chosen well. He says, by this gospel, verse 2, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So here there not only is a responsibility to accept the gospel, believe it, be obedient to it, but hold firmly to it throughout your life. To not be someone who 15 years down the road of salvation lets go of the buoy and says, I'll just be out here treading water and hope it turns out for me okay. Those who are saved in Scripture are those who have trusted and obeyed Jesus and they've stayed faithful to Him. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 23. Colossians 1, 21 and 23. It says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. Verse 23, Now, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard, that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. He says, if you continue, the responsibility continues throughout our Christian life to hold simply to Jesus Christ. The hymn goes, trust and obey, for there is no other way. Those who do that, that stay with the source of salvation, will be saved. And they will not be in hell. Finally, in this area of who will not be there, will be those whom God may save on His own terms. Luke chapter 23, I want to talk about who is commonly referred to as the thief on the cross. I want to try to make what could be called an accurate use of this text. Many times religious groups have gone to this text to talk about, well, here's someone saved apart from being baptized, and that's not the point of this text at all. But here we find on, at the crucifixion of Jesus, 
There was an individual on his right and on his left that deserved the punishment, at least according to Roman law, that they were receiving. One basically scowled at Jesus and mocked him. But notice the response of the other one and what Jesus said back to him. Luke chapter 23, verse 32, says, Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they were crucified. Uh, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They, they said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Verse 40 now. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said. Since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I want to try to understand this text, how it may apply to those who we don't know exactly what God will do with them. Those who may have some level of faith or some level of acknowledgement of God, but as we see it in Scripture, it's far, far short, at least as we can humanly understand the response to God. We may have a family member or a loved one or a co-worker that has all these good qualities. They may express at times things of faith, but, but we know they're either rejecting God by the way that they live or or they just don't want to accept the gospel, but they're a really good person. On some level, we struggle with how to understand them. What I do understand about this text is that Jesus acknowledged that this one criminal was in a saved state based on simply Jesus' own terms. However Jesus determined that that criminal would be with him that day in paradise, I don't know exactly. But Jesus said, he will be with me in paradise. And if Jesus, on his own terms, in the moment of his own crucifixion, determines this person will be with him, that is Jesus' right to do so. I do notice this, the sense of this man's contriteness and responsibility. It says, uh, verse 40, that the one criminal here said to the other, don't you fear God, implying that this one criminal did to some extent? Since you're in the same sentence, we are being punished justly. He's taking responsibility for his life. He says, we are getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing. He seems to acknowledge some degree of the understanding of 
Jesus, or of an understanding. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I don't know how much of that weighed upon Jesus' decision to simply tell him, today you will be with me in paradise. But it may give us a glimpse concerning situations and people we're not sure what God will do. But this is not a text where everyone can run to and say, well, I'm, part of, I'm in this group, or, or we shouldn't try to put people there. Because only Jesus made that call. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And we will not be the judge on the judgment day. God has never given us the role or the responsibility of determining who will be in heaven or hell. Our role is to tell the truth. Our role is to share the gospel, be honest about the consequences, but not try to cherry pick who will be there beyond the four groups we looked at. But God, in His justness, may determine apart from our ability to understand what to do with individuals that we shed tears over because we're not sure where they stand with the Lord. Final applications. If there's one thing you can be sure about today is this. Hell is completely avoidable. No one's going to go there by accident. It's completely avoidable. Second, the only place of security is with Jesus. Jesus said in Mark chapter 16, verse 15 and 16, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He is the only source of salvation today. The only one we can go to, not our goodness, not just being a spiritual person, not being part of a good family. It's only being in the saved position where we're with Jesus, holding to Him tightly. Because He is the life preserver. He is the life giver. That is the only place of security from the fear of hell. We know that. I want to end with a challenge that we often get. Sometimes when people know that we're a Christian or we're someone of faith, and people are struggling with the gospel message and they're struggling with us telling them about their need to be saved, in their frustration or their pain, I'm not sure what it is at times, or a rebellious spirit that's struggling, they'll say, well, what about, what about my aunt? She was a good person. She was a churchgoer. And and are you saying that she, because she wasn't baptized or, or she didn't really ever <clears throat> proclaim true faith in Jesus, she just talked about God, you say she's going to go to hell? And sometimes people will try to throw people in our lap. <laughs> They'll try to throw people at us that, to try to make us the judge. Try to make us the one that says whether or not someone will go to hell or not or go to heaven. As I said earlier, that's never our place. Well, what do you say, though? And people always say, well, what about so-and-so? What about my husband? Or what about my children? What about my good friend next door, two houses down? Are you saying they're going to go to hell? You simply say no. That's not my position to ever say anything like that. If someone asks you about hell and their loved ones, defer to God's fairness. Abraham said to God, as God was 
telling Abraham about the destruction of God of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Abraham said to the Lord, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? He certainly will, even if we can't figure out someone's situation. Even if we don't know about the neighbor two doors down or, or someone's aunt or someone's beloved grandmother and what will happen with them in eternity. And even if we know based on what we know, Scripture, it's not looking good, if you'll say it that way. It's still not our position to tell other people, well, here's what he's going to do with this person. We simply defer to God's fairness, His nature, and God's willingness to do what is right. God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. God was so determined <laughs> that people not go to hell he allowed his own child to be killed, which I don't think any of us would do, starting with me. Maybe you would, I wouldn't. He did that to make sure no one could go or would go. And whatever he does with people that we're not sure about, he's going to do the right thing. If on his own terms they are allowed to go to heaven, so be it. It's on his terms. We're not going to argue against that. We're just going to be glad that we are there with our Lord forever. If someone does not go, that will be because they chose to reject God now, and they're now experiencing the full reality of what the universe is like when God is not there. But our place is not to try to determine what's going to happen with Aunt Martha or young Billy or anyone else someone tries to give to us as they themselves wrestle with what they need to do. Or even if the question's being asked legitimately, to say our God will do the right thing, and it's not, I don't know what will happen. Say that lovingly, with kindness, and allow the person to think about their life. Because they're the one that they're responsible for now. And we can't affect always the decision or what will happen with others. Hopefully these lessons have helped to give you what Scripture presents as the truth about choosing wrongly and allows a foundation to be there that ought to scare us to death. Of ever dealing fast and loose with sin or walking away from God or thinking we're above anything God tells us to do. And we're now ready to hear in the upcoming weeks all that God has planned for those who have chosen him. And it will boggle the mind. And the places we're going to look in Scripture that God, where God tells us what the glory of heaven will be like are the most wondrous places we could go. We look forward to going there together. Again, hell's unavoidable. It's avoidable. No one has to go. And this morning, as with any moment in life, the time is there to make a decision to respect God and to understand the future and to give your life in submission to God, to be baptized to have sins washed away, to confess Jesus as Lord, to repent of a life of rebellion, you can be saved. You don't do the saving. We don't do it. Jesus is the only one who saves. But we have to be in the place where He is. And the place where He saves is baptism. 
That's where sacrificial blood comes in contact with our sin and washes it completely away. But He is the Savior. This morning you can come to the Savior, or perhaps you have, but you, your life has been distant, or you know someone that you need to bring the message to. Make whatever decision you need to make to either bring your own life or the life of someone else into compliance with God's will so that we might sing with the thousands one day. Holy, 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 as we'll learn about in the weeks to come. Need to obey the gospel in any way. Once you do so, as together we stand and sing this song to encourage us.